Welcome to the Audacity Church Podcast. We pray that you are blessed by what you hear today. We love to hear stories of what God is doing in people's lives. Take some time to share your story of how God is working in your life and email us at amen at loveservego.com. Now prepare your heart to hear from God today. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And that is the reading of God's word. Good morning. Uh, give me a second. Um, we're in a series uh, called uh, Dead Dudes with Beards. I need this, uh, so give me a second. Um, and uh, you're probably, if. Oh, Lord have mercy. I needed one more arm. We started a series um, at the beginning of the month called Dead Dudes with Beards. And if you don't hang around us enough, that might sound weird. Here's the idea. Uh, Whenever I quote theologians, I call them dead dudes with beards. Uh, Most of the theologians that have impacted me, the way that I think, the way that I process the Word of God, uh, most of them had Beards, And so it's just an, a, a way that I've always uh, kind of quoted these guys. And so we decided for November, in honor of No Shave November, uh, and remember, ladies, you're not allowed to participate, uh, but when, uh, I know, it stinks, sorry. Uh, it's probably somewhere in the Bible, Book of Assumptions. Um, but uh, we, in honor of No Shave November, we decided, you know what, we're going to look at what some of these men from history and how they've impacted the church and what they did, what they taught. And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a guy named Wycliffe Jean. Just kidding, just kidding, kidding. Uh, he was uh, someone, he's a rapper. We looked at John Wycliffe, Wycliffe. I didn't know him personally, so I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, but he was... Uh, pre-reformation and he was passionate about many things one he didn't see he didn't like what he saw going on in the catholic church at the time and also he wanted to make sure that people could read the bible in their own language and so he looked at his life we learned that the catholic church was so outraged by his teaching that years after he died they dug up his body and burned his bones and then threw him into a river um and that that stinks. And um, then a couple of weeks ago, we actually looked at uh, another 
couple of guys named Calvin and Arminian, or Arminius, and how Calvinism and Arminianism have impacted the culture of the church. And so we're going to fast forward a few more hundred years, and we're going to look at another guy today and his impact as a pastor and preacher on the church in whole, okay, as a whole. In a snowstorm in uh, January of 1850, A 15-year-old boy is running an errand, and the snow gets so heavy, he ends up basically stumbling into a medieval, um, it was a Methodist church. He stumbles into this church. Well, the snow was so heavy that the pastor couldn't even make it to church that day. So a layman in the congregation preached the word that day. And the focus of this layman's message was out of the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah 45, verse 22, changed this 15-year-old boy's life. The verse says this, um, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no one else. It impacted this 15-year-old boy. He surrenders his life to Jesus, and he's saved. About a month later, he gets baptized. And a year later, he is 16 years old. He's leading a Sunday school class. And he preaches his first public sermon. At the age of 19, Charles Hayden Spurgeon becomes the pastor of a church known as New Street, New Park Street Chapel. It was the largest Baptist church in London. He's 19. By the age of 22, he is selling his sermons for a penny apiece and his teaching is going all across the globe. He had a ministry that was filled with heartache, but at the And um, he battled depression. He's 22. And he's preaching to probably estimate, say, 10,000 people a weekend. This is pre-internet days. It's 1850. And um, he was passionate. And some people considered often controversial. One of the things I appreciate about Spurgeon so much is he was adamant about a, a teaching. And we've talked about it here, and I don't want to unpack it because I, 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 I wanted, my goal is to simplify as many things as I can. Uh, I have the privilege of spending hours to study this stuff. But there's a, it's a philosophy, a, a, a doctrine, if you will, a way of teaching, a core belief. And it's called sola scriptura. And it means the scriptures alone. Basically, the Bible is it. We would say there is no no other, we don't need to Google or Bing. I use Bing because Josh told me he gives points. So I get a coffee from my wife like every three months for free. So that's why I do it. Uh, so I promote Bing now too. Okay. It, it's, you don't get to go to Google and Bing and ask them a question about, no, no, you can go to the word of God and see what it says. The Bible should be, and what we believe around here, is the final authority in, on all things. We don't, we don't debate things. We just, okay, well, what does the Bible say? We believe that the Bible is the supreme authority in all matters, whether it's doctrine or 
practices. Spurgeon also was, he, he opposed slavery. He opposed slavery so much that the Southern Baptists stopped supporting him. Now, Southern Baptists believed that they could own slaves. I know Wilberforce gets a lot of credit, and if you don't um, know who he is, bing him later, Google him later, uh, what he did in the parliament to help um, get rid of slavery, and then we, uh, we're a little slower over here, but we took care of it too. But Spurgeon knew slavery in the form wasn't biblical, and he lost a lot of support. He's preaching to thousands of people one day, and um, someone screams fire, and people panic. And uh, basically a stampede of people happened, and people died that day. And Spurgeon struggled with this, of people dying in church. And um, there's, he talks openly about his, um, his dealings with um, depression. He was known as the Prince of Preachers. He was a British pastor. It's estimated that he preached over 3,500 sermons to about 10 million people. He published 49 volumes of commentaries. His sermons fill 63 volumes, making it the largest set of books by a single author in the history of Christianity. He was a pastor in London for more than 40 years. And he was probably the most um, well-known pastor of his day. Perhaps one of the reasons that Spurgeon is continuing to make impact 120 years later is because of the simplicity and the clarity in which he taught. But clearly the guy needed a television. I mean, seriously. All he did was write, I felt so guilty reading about this guy's life. I'm like, I can barely find time like to like hammer out a blog post during the week. And this guy's writings fill 63 volumes. It's a lot of books. I was astonished at what he accomplished by the age of 22. And if Spurgeon teaches us anything, we are never too young and we are never too old to make an impact in eternity, to make an impact in our city. I, uh, <laughs> I was just stunned at his life, the way he chose to live, the way he chose to stand up for what he believed in. And he impacted, he's still impacting the church today. If you would like to glean a little bit more from him, there's a website that I promote actually a lot. And if you take our class called 201, which uh, we just really call it Love God, we teach you how to study the Bible and pray more effectively. I teach you about this tool in that class, but it's blb.org. It's blueletterbible.org. And if you go on there, there is a daily, there's a morning and evening devotional by Spurgeon. And I've been reading those for years and have yet to see the same one twice. And now I know why. <laughs> <laughs> There's 63 volumes for them to pull from. But he speaks very plainly and clearly. And it reminded me of this, and I know uh, Hannah did a great job of reading the scripture to us today. Uh, we really want to look at the, uh, 
uh, of who Jesus Christ is, what he did, but that he also called people to turn to truth. In Ephesians, it puts it this way. And he, speaking of Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every word of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into who he is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that the body builds itself up in love. Listen, gang, I have a responsibility. Okay, and this responsibility is um, uh, to teach and to disciple in a manner that equips you. You have a responsibility to grow in wisdom and knowledge of Christ and do the work of Audacity Church. That's what you're called to. If this is your family, this is where God wants you planted. The Bible says if you are planted in the Lord's house that you will flourish in the gates if this is where God has called you to be, you have a responsibility to grow, not only in wisdom, and but also in areas of ministry. I think that it, we have to work together in a way that glorifies Christ. But the Bible clearly says that the, he set apart people like Spurgeon, pastors and leaders, to help lead and to communicate Scripture clearly, and to teach people how to walk in victory Clearly. And so, um, nah. the a Western church, I'm not going to blame the church as a whole because we just crushed it here. Um, the Western church has become a place where there's two fallacies. And this isn't part of my notes. This is free. Someone please tip me later. Um, one fallacy is what's taught in our cemeteries, I mean seminaries, um, and it is called, um, I've just totally forgot it. This is why it should have been in my notes. It is the pastoral mystique. Like I'm somebody more special than you. Or like when I pray, like the red phone in heaven rings. Jesus is like, oh, it's the bad phone. It's Pastor Ronnie. That's not it at all. My spiritual gifting is different, and my accountability in heaven will be different. And so because we've created this, we've also created a church, a body of Christ that doesn't reflect the book of Acts very little, and where we find a body in which where we can consume instead of where we are called to contribute. And what scares me is what Spurgeon is going to teach us later about the church. And we've talked about how we've seen some of the practices of the church that the forefathers, the people that impacted the church, were so against. And so you can't ever outserve God. If you're a part of the body of Christ, if you're a Christian, you're called to serve the body of Christ, and we're called to serve the world. And so this is what happens. You think I'm special, I'm not. I'm not. I'm called and anointed to preach the gospel. And so are you. And so this is what I want us to unpack today. 
whenever we're reading what Spurgeon says, and then when we align it with Scripture, realize that this only happens when we become Christians and when we become serious about what Jesus has called us to do. We've seen how with the great price that people have paid so that we could stand and do this today. And we've seen their impact. And so for me, for me, my good goal is to serve. Your goal is to serve. That's what we have. We have to, we have to create a place. We have to be a place where people are empowered to serve. So they're like, well, pastor, I don't really don't know what I want to do. Well, cool. Man, there's some people around here that are going to help you figure it out. Or you can just stand at a door and shake someone's hand after you use hand sanitizer, please. Let's see what Spurgeon says. We're going to glean from Spurgeon. Number one is on anxiety. And I tell you what, this is one of my favorites because this is one of my favorite sins. Some people do porn. I do anxiety. Um, it, it's true. I am. I get anxious about everything. I've told this before. Like if Ashley is out running errands, and I haven't heard back from her or she didn't answer her phone and it went right to voicemail. All of a sudden, I believe that she's crashed the car. She's driven off the 169 and she's on the side of the road and nobody's helping her. And my wife's going to die. And who's going to marry a guy with 10 kids? Right? That's where my mind goes. I'm like, I get totally anxious. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm like, she didn't call. I mean, it's really okay. But here's what happens. So here's what Spurgeon says. Our anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but only empties today of its strength. When you are anxious about the bills at the end of the month, when you are anxious about other things in your life, it does nothing for what you're worrying about, but it drains you of today. Guess who's impacted? Your husband. Guess who's impacted? Your wife. Guess who's impacted? Your kids. My daughter turned 15 today. Um, Yes, sweet Maya. And um, I don't like being around her because all she does is speak faith. I don't know where she gets it from. I'm like, hey, listen, I only do that from the pulpit. Like, seriously, when we're around home, we're going to be depressed and anxious, okay? Come on. Come on. And uh, we're talking today about uh, some stuff that's coming out. We were talking the other day, her and I were together, about stuff that's happening next year. And she goes, Dad, what are you going to do when you're a New York Times bestseller? And I'm like, Maya, if I sell 20 books, I'll be happy. Just don't be speaking positive New York Times bestseller crap over me. I mean, but she does it. Why? Because she's not anxious about anything. And we get so anxious. He goes on to say, a Jesus who never wept couldn't wipe away a tear. Jesus knows exactly what you're anxious about. And he wants to remove that anxiety. And if you're like me, you like to hold on to it. Like, here, Jesus, in my prayer time, I'm going to give it to you. And then I'm going to take it back. And I'm going to wear it today. I know this morning in my quiet time, Jesus, and I'm in the book of Ezekiel, is where my private quiet time is. <laughs> book. Anyway, I'm getting so much out of Ezekiel. I could preach on it now. But the point is um, that uh, I have quiet time and I have prayer time. And then I'm like, and then before lunch, I'm already worrying and anxious about what I told him. I handed over to him that morning. I know none of y'all never do that. Just me. Your anxiety doesn't help anything tomorrow. It only robs you. And guess who else has impacted your kids? Unless they're like Maya and my kids, for whatever reason, see everything else that we do and we say and how we pray. Maisie had a fever, and she goes, Dad, will you lay hands and pray over me? Like, she's three. 
four, whatever she is. What is that? There's time. I listen here. There's 10 of them as of January. First Peter says this, humble yourselves therefore into the mighty hand of God that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Would you stop acting like he don't care and he ain't listening? Because he is and he does. He loves you so much. He doesn't want you to be fearful or anxious. And we are. Psalms 55 says, cast all your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will not permit the righteous to be moved. You're righteous in Christ. You have no reason to carry these burdens that you carry. Now, let me tell you how the Christians, man, they're funny. We carry anxiety, uh, every, almost every Christian I know does, but they carry it in different ways, so it's cute to me. Because like, oh, I'm not anxious. I'm like, yeah, you are. And this is how we carry it. It's funny, because here's what Some people carry anxiety about finances and resources, right? They're worried about running, and that's what the, most people commonly think. Or maybe it's a sickness that they're dealing with or something else. And so they have this anxiety, okay? And this anxiety wells up in them, and it's because of, they're worried about whatever, okay? X, Y, Z. Other Christians, the professionals, we'll call them Pharisees, um, their anxiety comes about what other people think about them. They didn't go to the right college. When, you know, they're in their sphere of influence. So where did you go to school? And they're so anxious about what the world thinks about them that it impacts their spouse and their kids and the way that they live. And so they're constantly living in the anxious masquerade. They put on this face and deep down inside, they're so anxious that it consumes them. We're professionals. We get anxious about our performance. Sundays suck. I mean, I was trying not to use that word. At least one that had the mic, right? Because um, by 2.30, by the time we get home, we're here till late. We, get, we go have lunch or we usually. By the time I get home, I am, I'm, I'm, my goal is to watch football, especially if the Bengals are playing. Yeah, who day? And um, I don't know, tomorrow night, prophetically, I'm saying that. And um, I can't believe it. They need to win a playoff game before I really care. But the point is this. And I really just want to fall asleep because the truth of the matter is I start to pick apart every word I've said. And then Tuesday, I always listen to myself because I love the sound of nails on chalkboard and um, to once again, start saying, how can I get better? And then I think, man, who might I offended? Or did that come out the way that was the story right? And that's where my anxiety is. And anxiety robs you of today and it does nothing for tomorrow so many christians are paralyzed i love psalms 42 uh do you guys remember why why does the bible say things more than once because one is important two ronnie's remedial he has to be told things two or three times and so the bible loves me and so it just does it and yes it is because it's important psalms 42 says this in verse 5 In verse 11, and then in Psalms 43, verse 5, two chapters of the Bible, it says this three times. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation unto God. What are you afraid of? What is keeping you up at night? 
What are you anxious about? This is what you need to do. It's self-talk. Now listen, this isn't some self-help seminar. That's not my, my goal is to communicate scripture to you and preach truth. But clearly the Bible sets an example that sometimes you need to talk to yourself. Now listen, I talk to myself and I answer myself. Um, And all of you do too. No one just admits it publicly. That's not the kind of self-talk that you need. You need to speak words of life over yourself. When you're anxious, when you're battling depression, when you're battling fear, you need to look at yourself in the mirror and say, why are you cast down, oh my soul? God loves you and he's in control. And then you drop the mic. Reflexes like a cat. And you keep going. That's why I love this scripture because we have nothing to be fearful of. There's nothing to be anxious about. And yet I am and you are. And Spurgeon was trying to tell us that we have to get to this place where the anxiety is removed. Let me tell you why you're anxious. Let me tell you why I am anxious. And we might not only only pack one thing of Spurgeon today. Forgive me. A.W. Tozer. It's a book I read more than I read it every year. It's called The Pursuit of God. I don't remember the chapter. It's in between chapter and two and four, and it's on the left side of the page of the copy that I have. And he says this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. What's your nothing? What is it? There is something that's in the place of nothing right now in your life and in my life. And that's why anxiety happens. That's why depression happens. And that's what fear happens. What's your nothing? Jesus plus financial security equals everything. Jesus plus healthy children plus health for my life equals everything. Jesus plus amended relationship that you've been praying for over a year to be fixed, and it's still not. But that thing, until that happens, you don't have everything. What's your nothing? Because until we come to the place where we realize that nothing besides Jesus completes us, our equation will always look like Jesus plus this equals everything, and we will always be carrying something that we shouldn't. What's your nothing? Your nothing is something. That's awkward English, but you all know me. I don't care. Your, 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 your nothing that is something is impacting everything. See, Jesus plus nothing does equal everything. And there's a lot of days. You know it. And I know it. It's not enough, right? You want it to be. You know it's supposed to be. But the truth of the matter is that something else is there that you think is going to make you whole and make you complete. And until you have that, you're not satisfied. And it's because of that that we have anxiety and fear and depression and guilt and condemnation. And all of those things happen because your life wasn't that nothing is the perfect life that you thought you would have. That nothing is the perfect spouse. That he's a knucklehead. He's probably always going to be. And God gave him you to stretch you. Not so you would live in this. I need him to become this. Or the wife that's not all that you want her to be. Or the kids that don't they don't live up to your standard. And they, you, it's something. That nothing is something. And when it is, it impacts 
everything. Because until you come to the place where, as A.W. Tozer realized, that nothing, nothing but, nothing but Jesus, that's it. You don't need anything else. Spurgeon didn't, or Tozer didn't have a beard, or maybe we could talk about him. Let's move on. On worship. This is what Charles Hayden Spurgeon said. All places are places of worship to a Christian. Wherever he is, he ought to be in a worshiping frame of mind. Psalms 139. I'm not going to read all this, but it's back there. You can read it later. Lord, you've searched me. You know me when I sit down. You know me when I stand up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You're acquainted with all of my ways. Even before I speak a word, you know what I'm going to say. You hold me together. Where shall I go from you? Do you realize that right now you're worshiping something? See that nothing that might have popped up because the Holy Spirit, he's the one that really does the preaching. That's something that popped up that's nothing that you need in order to have everything. Quality of life, standard of living, a kid that doesn't act like you used to. You know what I mean. When we live this way, we're worshiping that thing. See, everything that we do is worship. Our lives are worship. We're, we're living our lives as a fragrant offering of incense unto the Lord. That's how we live our lives. It's worship. So when something takes the place that's supposed to be nothing, and then we'll have everything, what is it that you're worshiping? Worship is simple. Are you worshiping finances? Are you worshiping your future? I'll be happy when. Everything will be okay when. You're worshiping approval? I need approval. I need affirmation from him, from her, from them. Or is it Jesus? I don't think my MIL is here. She's supposed to be. She might be upstairs serving kids. I don't know. My mother-in-law came over uh, this week, and um, she goes, hey, I just brought you something. I just want to love on you. And she gives me money. Now, this week was also my birthday. I'm assuming all of you have a gift. Okay, good. And uh, uh, I turned 28, or 38, and I um, can't ever remember. <clears throat> and uh, it's right 10 years older than everybody in this church. Um, and... Um, I uh, I struggled. Like, why is my mother-in-law giving me, I'm a grown man. Why is my mother-in-law giving me cash? And the fact is that that's pride instead of letting her be a blessing. And that's how we treat things. That's how we treat people. I'm like, oh, I'm, that's beneath me. Are you kidding me? Seriously. So we went and had a really good lunch. It was awesome. The point is that I was worshiping a certain view that I have of myself that my mother-in-law shouldn't fill up, you know, she wants to toss me 50 bucks or whatever it might be. For you, it's going to be something different. You have something in there that's taking the place and you're seeking approval and affirmation or you're worshiping something. Until you identify what it is that you're worshiping besides Jesus, you will never have peace. Quit worshiping a better, further view of yourself. On the church, I'm going to try to move quickly. 
Spurgeon said this about the church. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I should have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I became a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Hebrews 10 says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful and let us not consider how to stir up one another and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as in is the habit of some but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near the church is never going to be perfect because it's made up of people but we get to worship the one who is perfect and we get to strive to live our lives in a way to emulate him. You're not going to ever find the perfect church. And if you're expecting audacity to ever become the perfect church, go somewhere else. Like, Ronnie, there's 20 people here today. Don't tell people to go somewhere else. <laughs> Elders will talk to me later. Um, the fact is, um, I have, I'm a professional Christian. I grew up in the church. I might have been birthed there. I don't know. Uh, when I was sick as a kid, my mom would quarantine me in the back of the church, told me not to talk to anybody. And I still went. Like, what if I need to throw up? She goes, well, you know where the bathroom is, and then come back and sit down. I'm like, can you just left me at home? And, um, and so I, I've grown up around professional Christians. I've grown up around people. And, and if you're not careful, you become just like them, right? You become a it becomes the church becomes a country club almost of our our own little thing instead of um a movement that is supposed to be advancing the gospel and making much of the name of Jesus your church is never going to be perfect this church is never going to be perfect but we are going to strive to emulate the one who is every day I love Spurgeon said it. Well, as soon as I show up, the church is imperfect. That's exactly how I feel. And so this is what I would like for you to do. Audacity is a couple years old. We're still figuring things out. You know, the church planning consultants tell me it's going to take till year five. And my patience that I don't have, I'm like, I can't wait that long. And um, this is what I want you to do. This is what you can do for me, your pastor. If you see it somewhere that the church needs to get better at, will you take ownership and do that? If you'd say, hey, you know what, man, we probably should do this. Man, I empower you to go ahead and do it. If you have some things that, hey, you know what, we could probably do better in kids here. We could probably do better in greeting here. Whatever it might be, will you take ownership? This is just as much your house as it is mine. We're imperfect people. I want this place to be more of a hospital than a country club. And if that makes you uncomfortable, this probably isn't the place for you. I, I want to give you a couple of quotes on uh, that what Spurgeon said about Jesus, because I think it's important. Nothing puts life into the men like a dying Savior. I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. Whatever needs you have, you have it in Christ. 
He is all that you need. If Christ is not all to you, he is nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as a part of a savior of men. If he be something, he must be everything. If he be not everything, he is nothing to you. Sounds like Tozer might have been a fan of Spurgeon. I'm going to read this last quote to you, and we're going to pray. It's not on there. Um, I, I, I wrote this this morning. It is impossible to know the value of salvation without desiring to see others brought in. I'm read it again. It is impossible to know the value of salvation without desiring to see others brought in. I'm going to read this last scripture over you. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. It says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who taught, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even Death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will confess and live out Jesus as Lord in this lifetime. Or. You will kneel before him in recognizing him as Lord and be separated from him. Simple. The Bible teaches that we have a gift, a free gift of salvation that's offered to us through the shed blood of Jesus. The Bible puts it rather simply. It says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, You'll be saved. We say this quite often around here. We don't believe that Jesus came to make bad men good. Bad women good. He came to give dead men and dead women life. And life to the fullest. He even calls it life more abundantly. I just want you to reflect on that for a minute. Have you come to that point where you've given Jesus your all? Let's pray. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to get plugged into the ministry of Audacity or support this ministry financially, you can get more information at loveservego.com.